Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you got your Bibles, open them up. We're in the book of Galatians, and we're going to be at the, we're going to start at the end of chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got some around the room. And if you made it uh, to college without one, or you lost it, I mean, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it, take it on your way out. Um, while you're flipping to Galatians, I want to tell you a story um, that is is going to tie in. I, I've told it before, but it's just such a great illustration for me to really help the truth and the challenge of, of where we're going in Galatians settle for me. Um, it's a free vacation that my wife and I got to Rome 12 years ago. 12 years ago, Danielle and I got to go to Rome, uh, not Rome, Texas, like the actual Rome, Rome, Rome. Uh, we got to go there for free. And, and let me back up and, and let you know how that happened. So four years earlier, before we were even married, Danielle and I have been married for 15 years. Before we were married, um, I was traveling internationally and I was coming back from a mission trip and I was coming back from Russia and I had landed in London and then the deal was I had to change flights and I had a layover uh, that was all night. So I landed at one airport uh, one evening and then my flight took out of another London airport the next morning. And so I had all night to hang out in London and I was like, man, I'm young. I don't want to like just, you know, waste this night like hanging out in a hostel or like getting a hotel. I'm just going to go like explore London. I've never been to London. Um, and so that was my thought. I was like, I'm going to go find a pub or a coffee shop that's open all night and just hang out in London. And so that's what I did. I, I took a taxi. I landed in, at Heathrow Airport, took a taxi, found a coffee shop, started hanging out and reading and, and that whole deal. And I got in this conversation with um, a guy named Abudi. And Abudi, uh, true story, was the most interesting um, fascinating, bizarre, fun, kind, weird guy I've ever met. And so he and I are chatting and talking, and, and he's just, he's this guy from the Middle East, um, and he's just got this, I mean, he's a caricature. He's just got this amazing personality and all these stories, and, and he's really fascinated by me because I'm this good old boy from Texas, and, and so he's really interested. And so we're just hanging out and talking and, and telling stories, and at some point, you know, I kind of let him know, yeah, I'm just in London for this one night, and I'm flying out in the morning, and so I just thought, I'm not going to waste a night in London. I've never been here. And he's like, you've never been to London. Well, what you need to do is you need to get in my car, and I need to drive you all night around London. Now, parents, I realize that I'm a pastor in your kid's life, right? And so I realize I, I have a big responsibility to set a good example. This was 15 years ago before there were bad people in the world. And so... <clears throat> I obviously got in his Mercedes Benz and he drove me around all night. Students, I do not recommend that at all. But it was awesome for me. It was really awesome for me. But I highly discourage you doing this. And so we drive around and he takes me to London Bridge and we're just chatting and talking and hanging out. And he ends up at the end of the night, he takes me to um, a train station that, you know, is a direct uh, route just right to the airport that I need to get to. But before we leave, he's like, hey, man, let me get your number. And we, I started to kind of talk a little bit about faith. And he's talking about kind of what he believes. And so he's like, hey, let's, let's swap numbers. And I was like, of course. And so I give him my number. He, he gives me his. And then... For a series of years, a booty will call me um, maybe once every three months. 
and he'll just check in and he'll have some crazy story. And I started to learn about this guy. Uh, his life is just basically one really, really long, awesome vacation followed by another. And I realized um, Abudi is short for his last name, which is Abu Dalla. And his family happens to own most of the oil in Saudi Arabia. So he has a home in London, right? And then he has a home in Cairo. And, he has a, and so he would call me like every three months or so for about four years and be like, hey, uh, I'm going to be in the south of France all summer. You got to come. Bring, at that point I was married, right? Um, and he's like, bring Daniela. He called her Daniela. Bring Daniela and just hang out in the south of France. And I'm like, I, we are poor and we work two or three full-time jobs. Like you just, you just don't disappear for a summer at the south of France. I don't know, I don't know how to tell my boss at Wendy's that I I can't, I can do that. Um, and so, and so that is this idea of like every three to five months, it's like, oh, I'm going to be in Cairo, come, it's beautiful, spend the winter in Cairo and hang out and, you know, and then and it'll be, it'll be somewhere else, it'll be Paris. And so one summer, four years of this, right, this is our relationship, four years of this, and he calls me and he's like, I'm going to be in Rome and then Sicily for this entire summer, come and spend the summer. And I was like, hey, I don't want to take advantage of you, Right. But I could get off work for a week, seven days. And if you really want to fly me and Daniela out for seven days to hang out with you, and like, then we'd be honored. But I also don't want to like take advantage of your generosity. And he was like, done. Yes, it's a deal. We got the dates. Sure enough, I get e-tickets sent to me, which, by the way, were from a travel agency that had his last name because he also owns a travel agency, casual. <laughs> And so we get the tickets. And so we get two tickets, and we know we've got round trips. So I know I'm flying there, and I know, I don't know what's going to happen in those seven days, but I know I'm going to be able to fly back. Again, students, I don't recommend this. This was before bad people existed. Um, and, so, and so that's what we did. We, we told all of our friends, like, we're going to Rome. We're going to land. We're probably going to come back seven days later. We don't know what's going to happen. We might get kidnapped. Who knows? But we're going we're gonna to trust God with this. And so we go and we walk out of the terminal to go get our bag, you know, from, from the baggage carousel. And there it was, a limo driver with a sign that said our last name, Fuquay, on it. Which maybe that's a daily thing for you guys. That was a big deal for me. Never happened, never, just, I, the guy had my last name on it. And we were like, what, we grabbed our Walmart bag and we were like, okay. And we got in the back of this limo, right? And he takes us into the heart of Rome and drops us off at the Hotel de Russie, which is this hotel smack dad in the center of Rome. Crazy nicest thing I've ever seen, right? And we walk in, there's this amazing restaurant that's built into the middle of the hotel. It's like this garden restaurant and like a hamburger costs like $180 and a glass of water is $40 and saltines are $19 a piece, that kind of thing. And it's just nice and opulent and everything's amazing. And, um, and they asked me for a credit card um, for uh, incidentals at, at the hotel. And so I like hand them my, you know, it was like $14 in this account. Um, so hopefully, hopefully this will work. Um, because we can't afford anything here. And, and then I ask them, you know, hey, you know, is Mr. Abudallah around? Like, uh, I don't want to, like, pass him in the hallway. I, mean, I haven't seen him in four years. Like, I only hung out with him one, one time, and I didn't want to, like, be rude and, like, oh, he's at the restaurant. I didn't even recognize him. So I asked him, and they were like, oh, oh, we're so sorry, Mr. Fuquay. Um, he is delayed for business or vacation or something. His other vacation went too long or something. And so he's not going to be able to come for another week to week and a half after we'd already scheduled to fly out. And so I panic a little bit. 
And then they quickly assure me, oh, oh, but the room is, is already covered and it's already on his business account. And so you've got no problem. You've got your room. We've got your credit card for incidentals. And so you're all good. So we we're like, okay, we're here. We're in this crazy, awesome hotel for free. We didn't pay for this room. We go up to our room. We're like nine-year-old kids, like jumping on a bed that's worth more than our house, right? And we're like, this is amazing. This is un unbelievable. And so we spend the first half of that trip, right, just uh, kind of in awe, right, of where we're at and the beauty of it and, and the opulence of it. There's like a, a spa in our hotel, and we're like, wow. I mean, everything's just super fancy. Um, but obviously, we're just, you know, broke newlyweds. And so when it comes to meals, we like go out in the city and do sightseeing, and then we like scrounge around like raccoons for leftover food to feed ourselves or like split a bag of Doritos for like lunch, those kind of things, or like wait till somebody's done with their pasta and then pretend like we're wait staff and then go eat it in the back alley. Um, and so we're slumming it there, but it was awesome. And I remember, I remember you know, about midway through the trip, like, you know, I, we were, I had the robe on from the, from the bathroom in our hotel. It's like robe that's, you know, thousands of dollars and it's made with like real fur, um, not like the asbestos that the ones I get. Um, and so I'm sitting there in a robe in this amazing hotel that I've got no business being in, just thinking, this is awesome. This is awesome. And also, why did it take me four years to say yes to this? Right? There, there was really this tension. And one of the things that I, I want us to remember, and I'm, I'll follow back up and, and let you know how that trip ended here in just a second. But one of the things I want us to hold on to is this idea that is going to be a theme throughout the passage we're going to study. And when we study it, what we're really going to do is we're going to look uh, at verse 27 of chapter 3. And we're going to spend um, unapologetically a disproportionate amount of time helping understand why this is important, what it means. And then we're, we're going to move pretty quickly through the other nine verses that really show some application from it. Um, but what we're going to see is this theme of how challenging it is for Christians, for people who are, are following Christ, to receive the gift that has been offered and put in front of you. And, and how difficult it is to really walk in confidence. And it's this stark reality that I just picture myself sitting on, on this huge, comfortable bed in the middle of this opulent hotel in the heart of Rome you know, as a, as a newlywed guy who, who just has no business and being in awe of the generosity, but also how difficult it is to receive that. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're going to jump into this idea of that confidence that we should have in Christ. And I want to start with just that, even that phrase I just used, in Christ. This very churchy term that I think gets thrown around a lot. What does that really look like? And so let's just camp out on chapter 3, verse 7. We'll throw it up on the screen for you. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This short sentence is packed with a ton of context that we've got to understand, but also a ton of implications of what it means. And so I want us to spend some time unpacking uh, really the context, and to understand the context is really to understand the gospel, to understand what is Paul really saying when he says that we're baptized into Christ and what it means to put on Christ. Um, what we see in the book of Galatians, this letter that's written to a people that the apostle Paul loves, is we see a people who have drifted from the reality that they are adopted as sons and daughters by a gracious and kind and merciful God. That that is where their adoption comes from. A God who says, you are my sons, you are my daughters. And they've drifted from that idea, as I think so often many of us do, certainly I do at times. And instead, in order 
to hold on to their status or their identity as sons and daughters, they've drifted into this idea of, well, I better do more religious extra things. And it's something that happens all of the time, and it was certainly happening here in Galatia. They were saying, okay, we've been adopted because God is gracious and kind and through Christ, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But now, to hold on to that identity as sons and daughters, I I guess I've got to fill my plate with lots of extra religious things. Right, to really secure that identity as a son or a daughter of God, which I obviously want because he's the creator of all things, I've got to do a lot of extra things and be a part of extra festivals and and religious things and and help make sure the scales stay tipped in my balance, that I, I get my favor from those things that I do, those works that I do. But God says clearly in Ephesians 2, it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so throughout Galatia, right, throughout Galatians, we've seen what is required for this eternity-shaping adoption that happens for Christians. This this idea that our eternity is shaped by a God who says, you are my son, you are my daughter. It's not all the religious rituals. It's not how good of people we are. It's not how churchy or, or Christian things we do. It's faith. It's faith. That's what scripture says. Faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right? Because, because we see that sin has separated us from God. Right? Our creator, the one we were designed to be in a relationship with, sin has come and it has broken that relationship from the creator to the, to the creation. Um, and, and not just sin being something that we would define as the bad things we do or the things we do that aren't honoring to God, but sin really being the condition of my heart. Right, the, the fact that not just the list of things that I do that might be sinful, but really the very essence of my heart. We said it in the welcome. Literally, we say it in the welcome almost every week, this acknowledgement that our default setting is a heart that says, man, I want to be about me. Right, that, that's broken. That's not in alignment with what, how God has designed us to bring him glory because instead my heart says, I want to bring Ben glory. I want my life to be about me. I want my life to be about the things that I care about. I want to be king sitting on the throne of my life. And Jesus comes along and says, that's not your design. I'm designed to sit on that throne. And when I sit on that throne of your heart, of your life, you will be infinitely more satisfied because that's the design. And when you sit on it, you will be exhausted and you will spin your wheels and you will wonder why it's not satisfying and you will go from thing to thing to thing to thing to well to well to well to quench your thirst and it will not be quenched. I am living water. And so we have this sin that separated us. Condition of my heart, not just the things I do. The condition of your heart, not just the things you do. But what I get is a God who is willing to pour his wrath out on his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to make the payment for the penalty that I'm absolutely guilty of, right? So Christ is the one who takes the judgment that I deserve. We see that all throughout Galatians up to this point. We see this all throughout Scripture that has been pointing to this perfect sacrifice of Christ. And and so Paul's been preaching this gospel to these people, and they've drifted away from that. Christ, the Son of God, who lived a righteous life, guys, lived a righteous life, died for me, died for you, now raised to life, seated at the right hand of the Father who gets to advocate and whisper in the ear of God for those who have been adopted, that one's mine, that one's mine, she is mine, he is mine. Right? There's this beautiful thing that happens there with that, this beautiful picture that we are saved by grace, not of religious duties. That's not 
What's required of the grace? It's, it's faith. And so what happens is God says, I'm adopting you as my kids. I'm adopting you and I'm calling you to a new life. And so this gospel plays out. We are broken. He has come and he, he has called us. And then we have this decision to, to have faith in him, which we'll talk about even more here in a second. And then he says, now I'm calling you to a new life, a life that honors me and brings me glory, a life that we will not get perfect, right? And not only we will not get it perfect, we won't even do it well at times, but we will be his sons and daughters because doing the Christian life perfectly is not what earned us that identity. It's what we do in response because he has said, you're my son, you're my daughter. For those of you parents in the room, um, when, when you had your kids and they were one or they were nine months or they were 16 months old and they started walking, right? And they started taking those first steps. No parent looks at their kid when they start stumbling and they take two steps and then they fall down. A parent doesn't, get, doesn't stand up and say, you fool! Right, what are you doing? Be an athlete. Parents don't do that. You, you look at me, you, go, you took two steps. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. That's my son, that's my daughter. So we have this identity if we're in Christ. It doesn't change. It doesn't change how many times we trip over ourselves in the Christian life. We have this identity that we have a God who says, you are mine. No matter what your weekend looked like last weekend, student, no matter what your year looked like, no matter those past broken areas of your life, those things that we trip and stumble, that God isn't saying, oh, let me put some more rocks on one side of the scale as opposed to the other. He's saying, that's my son, that's my daughter, if we're in Christ. And it's this amazing, beautiful confidence that we have from the gospel that, that does call us to follow him, right? So if faith is what is required to have that gracious connection that will never break, if it's faith that's required, what exactly does that faith look like? Glad you ask. Here's what it looks like. Paul articulates it this way. In Galatians 2.20, Paul articulates just how that faith plays out personally in his life, which is, which is true for us. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives within me. And so what he's saying is that old life where I was trying to sit on the throne, where my life was about myself, Right? It is crucified. When Jesus hung on the cross, then God, he was buried. Take that old life. That old life is dead and buried. I was crucified with Christ no longer. I who live, it's Christ who lives within me. And then he says, the life which I now live, in Galatians 2.20, he says, the life which I now live, I live in faith in the Son of God. I live in faith. My old life is dead. God, take it. The good and the bad, take it. I live now in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's the call, that's the articulation of what it looks like to have a heart positioned after him, God's adoption for you. And, and all that we're going to talk about, not just in this sermon, but the rest of the year, these implications that come out of that reality of who he is and who we are in light of that, we can't earn it. We can't earn that identity by being a good, good enough person. I just have to trust this gracious gospel of Jesus which looks like no longer I who live, but you who live within me. And so the idea of baptism, which we see in this verse 27, right? We, we see this idea of baptism, that's what it's talking about. Baptism was a symbol, is a symbol of death, of the old life and now alive to Christ. Romans 6, 4 says it this way, Paul to a different audience in Rome, he wrote this. He said, we were buried therefore with him, by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so like Nathan and Zach were talking about in the welcome, next Sunday, we won't have a Sunday morning service reminder there. If you show up to worship Sunday morning, you're going to be lonely and stuck outside. The doors will be locked. But that evening, Right, we'll have a big horse trough in the middle of, the, of this floor for if there are people who want to be baptized. Right? We don't put pressure on that. We don't have a quota to fill, anything like that. But if there are people who want to, then, then we'll have those conversations way ahead of time and, and pray with them and talk with them and make sure they understand it. But what it is is we, we dunk people, right? And you go underwater, and then you come up. And what that is is a symbol. There's nothing magical. We believe here at this church there's nothing magical about baptism. There's nothing magical about the water or it's not this magical thing that saves you. We're saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith, our belief. But what baptism is is this picture of saying, man, where my heart is, God, take my old life and let me live for you now. It's this picture of being dead and buried in Christ underwater and now risen to be his. And yes, you'll stumble. Once you come out of the water, believe it or not, every person that we've ever baptized they sin even after they've come out of the water, right? So it doesn't perfect you. And you don't keep having to get rebaptized. But as adults, you know, there's some, some people who have been baptized as infants, which is, I think, a sweet profession of faith for parents who have said, we want to dedicate, we want to commission, we want to make sure that our kid is raised. God, would you seal him? Would you save him? Would you do what only you can do? And so many times there are infants who are baptized or babies who are baptized and they didn't know, but they had parents who loved the Lord and wanted that. And then it's beautiful because then as adults, they say, man, this is a position of my heart. What God began in me, I want to now profess as an adult. And so it's this really sweet picture and that's what what happens within that picture. And, And then what happens? There's newness of life. And this idea in verse 27 to then put on Christ. For as many were baptized into Christ, now put on Christ. What what does that mean? Last thing we got to unpack, even just with this one verse. I'm going to take us to Colossians 3. I don't have time to die, do a deep dive into Colossians 3, but if you want to study this topic more, this idea of what it looks like to put on and walk out this new life, man, this week, study Colossians 3, verse 1 through verse 15. It's awesome, good stuff. I'm going to read the last few verses in that section. This is, this is Paul giving us a picture of what, it, what are we putting on when we put on Christ. Verse 12 of chapter 3 in Colossians, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There is so much in these verses. Here's here's what I want you to study. I want you to spend time this week, even in in this passage. But here's what I want us to walk away with to help illustrate even this one verse that that we're in today with verse 27 uh, of Galatians in chapter 3. What do we put on? Right, this newness of life, when we put on Christ, we put on these, these things that come from Christ's righteousness, not from this great heart I have, but Christ's compassionate heart, his kindness, his humility, his meekness, his patience. Not, not gritting my teeth to earn all these things, but I put on what Christ has done, his character. Um, I, I've told the story before, this idea of putting on, um, I, I always think of my oldest son, Charlie, when he was about 
three years old, I think it was, uh, he, we couldn't get that kid to wear anything but athletic wear, right? Like dry fit shirts. Like that was the only thing he would wear uh, for a good solid like two years of his life. But on Sundays, he had to put on a button down. So like Sundays for church, he would put, you know, put a, a shirt on that I would wear. And so every, anytime I was at the main, our main campus, the Fort Worth campus, um, you know, I'd always dress in a, a button down shirt. And so he would dress uh, that way on Sundays too. And it was so cute because as a little three-year-old, he was so proud of it. You know, he was just so proud. And, and ev- our whole family referred to those as dad shirts. And he was so proud. And so he would just strut around church as a three- or four-year-old and just, you know, have his shirt on. And he'd walk in, you know, with, with Danielle. And people would, you know, the greeters at the door would be like, hi. And he would just be like, dad shirt. And walk in his Sunday school class, and he'd just strut, and he'd be like, this is a dad-dash shirt. And he wouldn't say, and there was a while where they were like, does he say anything else? And he just would always just say dad-dash shirt. And he was so proud of it, right? Because he got to put on this thing. And, and that is really the picture of what we, as Christians, if you are in Christ, we do. We put on our Father's righteousness, right? Christ's righteousness the Father has given us. And we put this thing on. And it's his humility and his meekness and, and his forgiveness that I don't have the power to forgive somebody especially somebody that doesn't deserve it. I, I, don't, I can't muster that up in and of myself, muster up patience, muster up love for somebody that I, I can't stand, muster up um, kindness for people that irritate me, but, but we put that on. And that's what the Christian life looks like because of the gospel. It's this implication we see in chapter 3, verse 27. You are ba- if for everyone who is baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. So the rest of our life is these implications, if you are in Christ, these implications of what it looks like to walk in that newness of life, putting on Christ, his characteristics. So for the rest of our time, I want us to kind of zoom into what that exactly looks like, right? We are called to put on that confidence. Let me, let me finish my week in Rome story real quick. There we were midweek, living our best life, slumming it when it came to meals, but definitely living our best life in the hotel. Humbled by the generosity of it. We get a phone call in the middle of the week, um, and, and um, I get a phone call from a booty. And a booty calls, and he's so apologetic, which is ridiculous, because he's completely hooking us up, and he paid for our flights, and he's got this amazing hotel room, and he feels so bad he's not there, and he's just so upset about it. And we're like, please, man, this is amazing, this is generous, this is the nicest place we've ever seen, much less actually got to sleep in. And, uh, and so he's very apologetic. And then he starts asking questions like, man, have you been going to the spa every day? And we're like, well, no, 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 we haven't. Like, you, you've, got, you've been eating the restaurant, right? Oh, their breakfast. Oh, man, you've got to have their steak. They've got the best wine. They've got, you've got to be enjoying all that stuff. Right? He's like, well, and I was honest. I was like, well, we're not. And, and we're, lo- we're loving it. Abudi, is all, it's all good. He was like, no, you have to try. I was like, well, we don't have that kind of money to be able to eat that. But we're not complaining. We're loving it. He goes, no, 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 no. It's all on my account. Everything changed, guys. <laughs> Everything, the second half of the week, massively changed. Click, called the concierge. Hey, so whose account is it on? No, it's on Mr. Abudal's account. Bro, we ate steaks every night. I got massages. I got, I mean, it was, we lived it up, right? And he was even like, you've got to. He's like, we're literally, I'm going to bring an entourage here that's going to stay in that hotel for over a month. Your three days of eating steaks and having wine and massage will, will not even scratch the surface of what we're about to spend. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I will take that as a challenge. 
and I worked it, man. There was actually fun story. This makes my wife nervous because this is not her personality, but it is mine. There was a movie star who was staying at our hotel, Tilda Swinton. She won the Oscar for uh, Burn After Reading. She's the white witch in Narnia, okay? One day the elevator doors opened and there she was and we were like, oh, the white witch. Um, <laughs> she was eating dinner. We were eating dinner in like this incredibly opulent garden thing one night in the garden restaurant and there she was with like a friend and they like had a bottle of champagne and stuff. And, and my wife was like, don't do it, don't do it. And I was like, I'm going to. And I told our waiter, hey, put her, the movie star, put her tab, put it on my tab. <laughs> $1,500 tab that night, guys. Just, just lived it up, man. We got massages every day. I was getting steaks and like feeding them to dogs in the street that I was wrestling with earlier for, for bones, right? It was just, it was awesome. And what happened, right? What happened? All of a sudden, I started walking in the confidence of, oh my gosh, this has all been made available to me. Nothing actually changed. We were under his card the entire time, right? Like it didn't change midweek. We were always under his account. We were always covered under his card, right? And yet, the uh, first half of the week, we just didn't believe it, right? We just didn't walk in that confidence. And then something changed, and we walked in that confidence, in Christ, we are adopted as heirs, it's going to tell us. As heirs, right? Co-heirs with Christ. That we have this adoption. He is our father. And nothing changes that. Even when I stumble, even when I mess up, even when I fall, nothing changes that. And it is revolutionary to how I live and inspires me to respond to the gracious adoption and unlimited account of grace that he has for us. So I want to show us two things as far as application, right? In just the last seven or eight minutes, I want us to look through these two things. One of them is we're going to see that in Christ, the statuses and the divisions are leveled and erased. Quickly, verse 28 and 29, right? We, we see we're baptized, we're put, we've put on Christ. Here's the first implication of that. There is now, if we've put on Christ, if this is true for us, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How beautiful is that? This is radical. Verse 28 is radical. I, I mean, this is all cool and popular now, right? But at the time, this was revolutionary. The way Christ had, had leveled the playing field for those who were in Christ. But there were huge cultural divides. And now this new identity as being in God's family was tearing down the walls, right? No longer Jew and Greek. I mean, Jew and Greek, had, had, um, Jew and Gentile had been something, Jew and Greek had been something forever, right? It, it, was, this, it was this distinction that very much determined your relationship with, with Yahweh, with God, the Father. Slave versus free, there's no difference. Everything is different. Slave. I mean, it was a cultural setting where whether you're a slave or whether you're a free person means everything. And now the identity in Christ comes along and says, no, that's no longer your value. That's no longer, this is leveled at male or female. That would have been revolutionary. This was a culture at the time that said women don't have rights. Even in this passage, he uses the word son multiple times. And even when we talk about the, the, um, the heirs that you are now an inheritance, you now have an inheritance as a son, he uses the word son. He doesn't use like a gender neutral son and daughter. He says son. And he says son because right here he's letting us know son, male and female are equal value because of what God has done. But he uses the word inheritance as a son because sons were the only one who got an inheritance. So if he says you'll have an inheritance like a son or a daughter, 
they would have been like, what? I'm a daughter. I don't get an inheritance. When my father dies, I'm lucky to hopefully have a husband that I can then submit to and he will protect me. Right? That, that was it. And yet here he's saying, no, no, men and women alike get equal. They get the son's inheritance, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. Equal value because of what the cross has done, because of what God has said. Um, it, it's, it's this amazing, amazing thing. So why did those divisions crumble? Right? Why did this, these dividing lines, these statuses, why did they get erased? Well, verse 29, because now we're siblings, right? We're now heirs. We're, we're now these descendants of Abraham. We're all now brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ. And so here's what I want you to walk away with. I'm, I'm going to give you two challenges as an implication of what it looks like to put on Christ. Putting on Christ, if, if you are in Christ. If in Christ, then we're challenged, even by verse 27 and 28 and 29 here, to pursue unity with your siblings. But that is an implication of what it looks like to put on Christ, that now there's no longer these dividing things, there's no longer these factions, these, these radical divides have now shifted, there's no longer these statuses that are cultural and, and even just inherent within my own biases, which means I have to pursue unity with my brothers and sisters radically. What would the reality of, of that look like in this community, even in the young adult community? What's it look like for you guys to radically pursue this kind of an application? Well, here's, here's one implication, and this is obviously zooming in. There's so many ways, but here's one thing. It means there's unity, and it means there's no more cliques. That's what it means. It means that a whole bunch of people who, if they're in Christ, it means that no longer is there room for, for cliques. No longer is there room for like, okay, well, man, this is just going to be our comfort zone and you're not really welcome in that place. And, and I'm not saying there's specific organizations or sororities or fraternities or extracurriculars that obviously can be exclusive in the dynamic nature of them. But as community, as who we relate to, as who we love, who we accept and welcome, we now all of a sudden have this radical pursuit for unity. It means that, man, if I'm inside a community of people, but I'm putting on Christ, it means that I should be outward focused in when, I dealing with, when I'm dealing with community, when I'm dealing with others. I should be looking for others to be able to invite in as Christ has invited me in. It changes how we deal with communities. It, it should dissolve cliques. And let me say this, not just from the insider. This is important. And it's not just it dissolves a clique because as an insider in a clique, you should now be outward focused. True. It also dissolves it from an outsider. Let's say you're the person who's on the outside of the clique and you hear this and you're like, man, I sure hope Becky's listening to this sermon. <laughs> Becky who won't include me in her crew, right? I, I get that. That's hard and that stinks and that. Becky, grow out of that, right? Yes. But also for us, it means if we're outsiders, we no longer see the barriers there. I no longer have to approach that insecure because I can walk towards that and say, oh, okay, if, if you're not mature, enough, I'm going to go ahead and put myself there. And I don't have to walk in insecurity to be invited because you're my sister in Christ and you're my brother in Christ. And so I'm going to take initiative. And, and if they aren't responding maturely, well, I'm going to love them enough. I'm going to forgive them enough. I'm not going to hold their immaturity against them just like my father doesn't hold my immaturity against me. And so it's not just a, an excuse for, hey, if you're an insider, be, be welcoming. It's also a challenge for those on the outside to say, quit shutting people out. Quit dismissing people. Quit categorizing. Maybe it was a bad look. Maybe they were mean. Maybe they weren't kind. Or maybe they're just walking in security too and don't know how to do it. And so you get to, because of this now, say, all right, I'm not going to see a dividing line, and I'm going to walk in confidence. Here's something else um, it does. I mean, when those things get 
dissolved, there's all kinds of fruit that happens, right? And, and all of a sudden, the world gets to see Christians. What would it be like if, if they saw Christians during an election cycle vote their convictions and engage in, in real good conversation about things that matter in our country, but do it in a way that's not divisive, right? If our world saw Christians in a way where, where if we had been offended, right, and felt like somebody had a debt against us, they watched us prioritize forgiveness over getting what we're due, right? They, they watch organizations or fraternities or extracurriculars or whatever it is, love each other within that as brothers and sisters of a good father. What happens? John 15 tells us what happens. The world will see how we love and they will glorify our father in heaven. The world sees that and they're like, who are these people? Who are these people? Who is their father? How did this unity of siblings doesn't make sense to the world around us? And they they don't think, wow, Christians are swell. They think, wow, that father is somebody that I want to be adopted by. Last thing is this. I'm going to read verses um, 1 through 7. And it's, it's not a new concept. It's really been the thread throughout this entire sermon so far. And it's this idea of the confidence of our adoption. So chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 is really this one more big application challenge I want to give you. Here's what he says, and I'll, I'll end on this. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, right? Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so what we have is Paul reckoning back to the Old Testament, saying, hey, you were under the law, right? You were an heir, but you were still under this law. You were still, you're still living this way. Until Christ has come, you weren't ready to inherit that yet, Right? But you were still looking, you were still saved by faith, you were still looking forward to faith in a Savior. And then verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's men and women get adoption as sons, making us full heirs, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The reality of our adoption changes everything. Right? Because we were under that, but now through Christ, we have been adopted. For those who have said, yes, I'm putting my faith in you, baptized into you. My heart is there. I've surrendered to you. And now I get this adoption. I get this incredible relationship. I get this spirit that lives inside me that cries Abba, this intimate word for, for dad to the God of the universe, the one I'm designed to be connected with because of Christ. And now I'm no longer a slave and I get to walk in that confidence, right? I get to walk in that confidence. Real quickly, I want to show you three um, juxtaposition. There's, there's a couple of things, and this is from a book called Gospel-Centered Life. We're going to throw them up on the screen here. Um, on the left, you see kind of questions or implications that you might say, say if you're still living as a slave. On the right, you're going to see implications of if you're living as a son, right? Uh, if you're still living as a slave, right? Think of me on vacation in Rome, right? I'm, I'm pretending like I don't have the money in the account, right? Because I wasn't aware, I wasn't walking in that. And so maybe, I, maybe you live in a success-fail basis. Maybe you look at your life and you really struggle to trust things to God. Maybe you have a critical spirit complaining in bitterness, right? Those things start to be like, oh, man, uh, those aren't things that I need to walk in. 
Because instead, I can actually feel forgiven and totally accepted. I can be content because you're accepted by God. I can trust less in self and more in the Holy Spirit. Let me throw up two more just to show you there's a hundred of these, right? These other two. Tend to compare yourself with others. Who, who does that? A slave does that. Somebody who, who is still under the old way where there's Jew and Gentile and Greek and, and all of those things. That, that's the old way. That's not what I've been adopted into. Maybe I look for satisfaction in, in my position or maybe my possessions. But instead, if I'm able to freely confess my faults to others, that shows I'm not insecure. I find my security and my identity. It does, it's not going to be rocked by my mistakes seeing that prayer is this ongoing vital thing. These are all, there's this book, Gospel-Centered Life, and it's full of these things. The reality is our life is constantly echoing the confidence we have if you're in Christ. Do I believe I'm adopted? Am I walking in the inheritance that I've been given? The Spirit of God in me saying, Abba, Father, you are mine, and all the promises that come with it. Not for my prosperity, not that I get good grades or have a great job, for my relationship with the one I'm designed to be in. That's our hope for you guys. If you are in Christ, that today this would be a reminder, an incredible reminder, an encouragement from God's word. Walk in the confidence of who he is and how he loves you. No longer buried by shame, no longer buried by performance. Walk in that confidence. And if you're here and you're not there yet, you're still investigating, my prayer genuinely this week leading up to it, that you would be moved to say, okay, the kindness of God is reaching out to me. I don't have to earn it. The kindness of God is reaching out to me and pay attention to that. What are you waiting for? To accept, to follow a father who has his best plan for you and that's to be in relationship with him. Man, let me pray for us and we'll go back into worship. Father, we love you. We love you for how you loved us first, God. Your grace is overwhelming and would you just continue to overwhelm us with that grace, God? Um, This truth that we are not slaves but we are adopted as sons and daughters, God. Um, would that change everything about how we live, Lord? Uh, would you take the truth of Scripture and we praise you for it? We praise you for these reminders. We praise you for the richness of it, even in just a verse or two, the richness of how this shapes how we live on Monday morning, how, how we spend our Friday evenings. It shapes our relationships. It shapes our jobs. Um, God, would you just continue this work you've begun in us, maturing, drawing you to you. For your glory, In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.